Well, this morning, our Growing Up Sacramental Sermon Series takes us on the road to Emmaus and into the territory of sacramental hospitality. Now, sacramental hospitality may be an unfamiliar phrase, but it is a very real phenomenon. One of my own earliest, most foundational experiences of hospitality was a season that was almost 30 years ago now. I was a very young adult living with two other women, and we wanted more from our home um, than merely living together uh, as roommates. We wanted a home that was intentionally dedicated to God. And one of the things that meant to us was hospitality. Now, our notion of hospitality was not very well defined. I don't remember that the three of us even had much of a conversation um, discussing what we meant by that. We just had a shared sense that hospitality was something that pleased God, and we wanted to be open to that. So this was the uptown neighborhood in the early 90s. So for a little over 300 bucks each, the three of us had an entire single-family home <laughs> all to ourselves over on Magnolia. So when the pastor of one of my roommates told us about a young woman who needed a place to stay for a while, we had plenty of room available. None of us had met her, but this seemed like an obvious connection to our hospitality mission. So for a while, Josefina was our fourth roommate. Josefina was 16 years old with no family nearby, and she and her six-week-old son just needed a soft place to land until she figured some things out. It was an interesting time. Our life circumstances were very different. There was a bit of a language barrier, but things worked out fine. And when Josefina moved on after about a month or so, my roommates and I soon found ourselves welcoming another teenager to live with us. Gladys had a young toddler and was pregnant with her second child. She stayed with us for about a year. Not long after that, God brought to us a third young woman, also pregnant, who became not just a roommate, but also a beloved friend. She is a wonderful Christian woman, now married with five children living in Algonquin. I don't see her very often these days, but whenever we do connect, it is a true joy. On the surface of things, I did not look like a likely candidate for practicing sacramental hospitality when I was in my early 20s. I was recovering from a bad breakup, I was mildly depressed, and I was struggling to adjust to life in Chicago after having grown up in a small town in West Virginia. And for years, I had very, very little discretionary income. Nonetheless, so many of my joyful memories of that season were given to me through the medium of sacramental hospitality. I remember trying oxtail soup and platanos for the first time, homemade, not by me, from my own kitchen, um, hosting a baby shower that got broken up by the police. <laughs> Nobody was drunk, but it was very late and we were very loud. Um, dancing around the living room to Whitney Houston's I'm Every Woman, with all my roommates singing into our hairbrush microphones. Now, I know that these may seem like garden variety, fond memories, but that's often how it is with sacramental things. 
The visible outward signs are often quite ordinary. Water on the head, bread in the mouth, but they correspond to powerful inward graces that are hard to describe. In this season, I was being changed by the grace of God working through sacramental hospitality. Now, to this day, I do not often approach hospitality with enthusiasm. I am a low-key introvert, low-energy introvert, and when I think about extending hospitality, I'm usually well aware of what it's going to cost me in terms of time and energy and emotional output. But, thanks be to God, I also know in my bones that God meets us richly as we welcome the stranger, even when we don't feel like we have much to offer. I know that the, what I will receive will exceed whatever my output is. Let's look at how that works through today's passage. You can turn uh, to your Bibles or uh, your service programs. Um, this story picks up late in the day of the very first Easter Sunday. The highly charismatic, highly controversial prophet Jesus of Nazareth had been publicly humiliated and brutally executed just the previous Friday. And a whole movement of people who had followed Jesus and believed in him and had hoped in him were reeling with shock, grief, fear, disillusionment, and despair. At verse 13, that very day, two of them, that is two disciples of Jesus, were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So these are two of Jesus' disciples, not from his inner circle. These are not two of the 12, but they are two of the hundreds and thousands who had encountered Jesus over recent years. They had heard the powerful, authoritative teachings of Jesus. They saw his incredible miracles. And Jesus had awakened a powerful hope of deliverance in them. They thought that he might be the one to lead the Jews out from under Roman oppression. But that was all over now. Jesus was dead. Their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the annual Passover feast, which began with Jesus' triumphal entry into the city, ended violently and shamefully with his gruesome execution. And these two men who had entered Jerusalem in hope and glory are walking away, profoundly saddened and confused. So this is certainly an interesting entry point for a story about hospitality. Emotionally, mentally, spiritually, these men are not in good shape. They are suffering, and they do not seem like likely candidates to make an offering of hospitality to anyone. Suffering and grief seem like legitimate obstacles to encountering God through hospitality. Certainly, in much of our North American culture, hospitality is considered to be an optional activity that we engage in when we feel we have extra to spare. Usually, I think about hospitality um, if and when I'm feeling like I have some extra time, some extra money, and extra energy to invest in other people through hospitality. It's hard to think about reaching out when we are sad and weary. But let's see what happens when a stranger 
intrudes upon the intense conversation of these two suffering men. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? Now, we the readers know that these sad disciples are making contact with the crucified and risen Son of God, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In a moment, Jesus will hint that one of the reasons that they failed to recognize him is that they are slow of heart to believe. It's hard to recognize miracles if you don't believe they can happen. But it is also true that their eyes were being kept from recognizing him. Why? I don't think I can say it any better than theologian Daryl Block, whose comment on this oddity is simply, in their uncertainty, God still had things to teach them. In their uncertainty, God still had things to teach them. Isn't that interesting? To us, confusion about how to proceed, uncertainty, seem like obstacles to extending hospitality. But to God, our uncertainty can be fertile soil for transformation. And again, in the dominant cultures of North America, even when we do perceive we have extra time, money, energy to extend hospitality to others, we still most often choose the known guests over the unknown guests. Many Americans, for example, tend to think of major holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving as times that are sacred, that is set apart for family-only time. Or maybe we will carefully handpick our most intimate group of friends for a Friendsgiving meal. But even apart from the holidays, when it comes to hospitality, it's hard to venture out into the unknown. Extending an invitation to someone we've just met, whether into our home or just meeting for coffee, is a truly unusual event for us. Well, in the eyes of Cleopas and his buddy, an absolute stranger has just invited himself into their conversation, and he does so with some rather ignorant questions. In this entire story, we only have three direct quotes from Jesus, and two of them are just questions. What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk, and what things? Cleopas and his buddy respond a little emotionally to these questions, Scripture said they stood still, looking sad. Overwhelmed with the effort of summarizing such fresh tragedy, they stopped in their tracks with their faces full of sorrow. And they are amazed at the ignorance of this stranger, maybe even a little bit offended. Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days. The scandalous death of Jesus of Nazareth was the talk of the town. Whether you were pro-Jesus or anti-Jesus, everybody in Jerusalem had thoughts and opinions on it. Everybody was posting their thoughts on social media, and it was a little shocking that this man was so out of touch. But as they make room for Jesus in their conversation, Jesus makes room for them. 
He begins to host them conversationally, making space for them to process their experience. And so they fill him in. In verse 19, about things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And they go on to explain some confusion um, that had just cropped up earlier that morning. When Cleopas and his friend describe the events of the previous days, they speak of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth as a mighty prophet. And they speak of him as the one in whom they had placed their hopes. They had dared to hope that this man Jesus would finally be the one to liberate the Jewish people from empire. And they have been disappointed. They had hoped for a prophet and to lead them and their countrymen out from under Roman oppression. That is a huge hope. The liberation of an oppressed people is a big hope. Imagine encountering a man whom you believed had the potential to correct and heal our country from racism, and then witnessing his execution by the state at the request of your own religious leaders. How disillusioning. Cleopas and the other disciples were grieving the loss not only of a beloved leader, but the loss of hope itself. And now, instead of expressing sympathy for their loss, this ignorant stranger, after asking his questions, moves on to a rebuke. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in the scriptures the things concerning himself. The original language of this passage gives us insight into the emotional tenor of this exchange. When Jesus says, oh, foolish ones, he's expressing real disappointment. Cleopas and his friend have have identified Jesus of Nazareth as a prophet, and they have even placed their hopes in him. But what they have not done is believed what the prophets had spoken about him. It's so interesting. They are not rebuked for for failing to recognize Jesus, even though he's literally in front of their eyes. Uh, They're not rebuked for failing to believe the testimony of the women earlier in the day. They are not even rebuked for badly underestimating who Jesus is and what he can accomplish. But they are rebuked for not believing the testimony of God through their scriptures. But Jesus, though he is disappointed, is also kind and patient. And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is a shorthand way of saying, describing all the Hebrew scriptures front to back, Jesus shows them all the way scripture interpreted, interprets these things concerning himself. He shows them that their hope was too small for what God had in mind. It was too narrow, excluding both the suffering involved and the incredible scope of the glory involved. Well, to the credit of these disciples, even though this stranger seems oddly ignorant, and even though the stranger is not vibing with their own emotional state, but is in fact speaking to them as if they are the ignorant ones, Cleopas and his pal enthusiastically extend hospitality to the stranger. 
They are intrigued by this man who expands their vision for what God might do. Verse 29, they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And this is, if you will pardon the expression, this is where the Holy Spirit magic happens. Their mysterious guest becomes their host. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Now, whenever New Testament writers use these words in this order, take, bless, break, give, they want to remind us of the shape of the Eucharistic meal. This is the meal that we participate in every Sunday, dining on the body and blood of Jesus, where the priest takes, blesses, breaks, and gives the bread. And this is the moment when God opened their eyes and they recognized Jesus. This then is the moment where we can see that there is something sacred, something sacramental, even in ordinary day-to-day hospitality. The willing host, Cleopas and his friend, the one who welcomes the stranger, become the guest of God. Luke, the author of this gospel story, is drawing a very close parallel between what is, after all, a perfectly ordinary, non-liturgical Sunday evening meal and the holy sacramental meal that we share during the Eucharist where we receive grace from God through the presence of Christ who serves us. This is a real dynamic in sacramental hospitality. When we host the stranger, we become the guest of God. This world and everything in it was created to be a home and meals for us. The generous hospitality of God is at the foundation of the universe, of all of creation. And when we participate in his hospitality, we enter what one author calls a happy confusion between guest and host, where God himself begins to serve us. Let's press in a little further. As we look at the significance of verse 35, he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And we reflect on the connection Luke makes between ordinary hospitality and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We can, like Jesus, comb through scriptures to see what it says about him. And as we look throughout scripture, we do indeed find other surprise revelations of God in the practice of ordinary hospitality. One famous instance was way back in Genesis 18 when Abram and Sarah entertained three strange visitors of mysterious and divine identity. But particularly notable is a passage in Matthew 25 when Jesus himself gives a sobering description of the day of judgment. Jesus says the day will come when he will say to some of us, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he will say to some of us, depart from me, you cursed, 
into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And he goes on to explain that the key difference between the true followers of Jesus and the false ones was whether or not they have welcomed the stranger. And then comes the surprise revelation. Jesus makes this profoundly mystical declaration. Jesus says, I was the stranger and you welcomed me. Or conversely, I was the stranger and you did not welcome me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. God identifies himself with the stranger and he bids his followers to welcome him. Now, I can't explain this sacramental mystery any more than I can explain the sacramental mystery of what happens with the bread and the wine at the table. But we can recognize that this is what the scripture teaches concerning Jesus himself, and we do not want to be slow of heart to believe it. So how can we take this beautiful call to sacramental hospitality to heart and put it into practice? Where can we begin? Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that we here at Emmanuel might be in vastly different places this morning. After 14 months of enforced isolation, some of us may actually be eager to practice hospitality. You may be bursting with ideas and energy and are raring to go as soon as people are ready. If that's the case for you, God bless you. Have at it. We need you. (laughs) If you are ready to jump in in the deep end, what I'm asking of you this morning is to prayerfully consider lavishing your hospitality energy on two specific groups of people. Group one, There are those among our own beloved Emmanuel family whom you've not seen or heard from in months. Reflect on who's missing from our midst and consider reaching out to them with your invitations. These are family members who have become estranged, as it were, through the trials of COVID, and they may need a fresh welcome. The second group of people Look around at those in your life who are strangers to God and to the church. These might be people who live in your building or on your block or people you encounter at work or where you hang out. Uh, Extend hospitality to folks who are far from God but hungry for fellowship. Now a word for those of us who are not bursting with hospitality energy. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, many of us are really struggling with a loss of hope. Many of us feel like hospitality might need to be postponed until later for a time when we're not so sad, when things seem clearer, maybe when we can get back to a stronger sense of well-being and abundance. Before, during, and after we practice hospitality, we need to take God up on his invitation to come to his house, the church, and commune with him every week in word and sacrament. This is true for all of us, but I think it's especially needful for those of us who feel depleted from the sorrows and disappointments of this last year. We need to be guests at God's table. 
Come to the table of the Lord in person as soon as that becomes possible for you and join faithfully online each week in the meantime. Then, as we establish and reestablish these rhythms of accepting the invitation to come to God's house and be fed by him, we can begin to extend ourselves gradually. For those of us who still feel a deep emotional reluctance to open our world back up, especially to strangers, to those beyond our immediate closest circles, there is good news. God meets us where we are. Cleopas and his friend were walking away from the holy city, but Jesus went after them. He met them, and he walked with them at their own pace. God typically doesn't teleport us from where we are (laughs) to where we need to go. He slips into the easy yoke beside us and shows us the way. So if you hear God's word of encouragement to welcome the stranger this morning and your heart burns within you as you've heard the call to respond, but it also seems overwhelming, start as small as you need to. Maybe you have a family member that you've not seen for a while, and while you're not ready to meet with folks in person yet, maybe you feel you could call them now and make a concrete plan to get together once you're all vaccinated. Or maybe you have a friend who lives close by and you could just initiate a 15 or 20 minute walk around the block and ask how they're doing and really listen to them. Don't let uncertainty block you from just starting to move forward. Because when we host the stranger, God hosts us. I can't promise that every time you practice hospitality, you will be dramatically transformed any more than I can promise you that you will be dramatically transformed every time you come to church and receive Christ through the body and blood. But I can assure you with great confidence and great joy that there are spiritual realities in play, whether we perceive them or not, and that when God hosts us, We are transformed and changed indeed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.